coming up on Art Palace. Art is healing. To be able to create something that's valued, that's validated by other people within this community that you thought you could never be a part of. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is Erica Yingling, Director of Non-Residential Domestic Violence Services, YWCA, Greater Cincinnati. I wanted to give a quick content warning that we do discuss domestic abuse and sexual assault in this episode. It's like you're competing with muse- the museum here for the longest, the craziest longest. title. <laughs> Do you know? Did you know this about me, Russell? I'm just going to share this. I have a BFA from DAP. I, Sarah was telling me about yeah. this, and I didn't know that until today, actually. And I was just like, oh, awesome. So I didn't know you you were all an art person, too. So oh, Very much so, which is so interesting because my life took a turn. Mm-hmm. You know, I have the BFA and in painting, drawing, and really drawn to, like, feminist art history. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I discovered women's studies and then applied for an MA in women's studies afterwards. Um, but still, in my thesis, focused on the representation of the Virgin de Guadalupe and feminist and lesbian art history, I guess. It was some crazy name, like, recuperating queer borders, you know, all that right, theori- right, right. theoretical stuff. Uh-huh. And then my first internship when I got a certification in museum studies from DAP was with Matt Distel at the Contemporary Art Center as his assistant. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I've known Matt for years, too. Yeah, he was so fun. It was a great experience. And then I taught, had the opportunity to teach. I was teaching at the university already some um, art history courses for grad Mm -hmm. students, like feminist art history, race in American art which I think is why Sarah asked me to do the gallery talk. Because yeah. She said, nobody talks about art the way that you do. I go, well, that was another lifetime ago. Not that it's still not true, but I think I need <laughs> to like, like riding a bike, <laughs> brush up my skills. Um, and I just went to 21C and saw the, um, the future is female exhibit. Oh, so yeah. I was, I'm totally rejuvenated into my <laughs> feminist art history. <laughs> You've like taken a, a shot of uh, feminist. Oh my, there's art. so many great works there. I need to go. I haven't been. I haven't seen the that show yet, and so I have many. no excuse. So you enjoyed the the CAC show? Yes, the 21. I'm sorry. Yes, 21C, the 21 yeah. C show. There yeah. was a show at the CAC that I wanted to go see. Now it just ended, though. The swoon show. Yes. Yeah, it was great. I did go to that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, my daughter. Edie was, you know, she goes to a great school, Mercy mm-hmm. Montessori, and they have um, visionaries and voices. I think I'm saying that correctly. They come into the school and they have a great art program. And she was talking about the Swoon Show. Oh. Like, we have to go see it. And of course, we missed it because there's just not enough time. Yeah. Um, but the 21C show, The Future is Female, I mean, there was a Carrie Mae Weems there. There's a Jenny Holzer there that I was just like impressed with the. Yeah. The credibility of the artist. Big names. So, yeah, a lot of like, you know, that second generation of feminism, but then a lot more contemporary work. 
Yeah. So actually, we're, you know, talking about feminism and, and talking about, you know, these shows, the reason one of the reasons we wanted to have you in is because, you know, March is Women's History Month. And so we just thought something you're passionate about. And and so what you know, you, you've got this art background, but what is it you where is it taking you today? Like, what are you what's what do you do on a day to day? What's got you so busy right now? <laughs> Well, that's so interesting. I mean, I think the journey into, you know, feminist art history is where it began for me, mm -hmm. because I remember sitting in a huge auditorium um, when I was a young student in DAP, and literally I was probably 18 or 19, and I was reading an art history book, you know, 600 pages, one of the quintessential books, and I was like, why are there no women in this book, there were few women artists. Yeah. Now, of course, somebody in 1972 asked that question, <laughs> right. Linda Nochlin, and why are there no great female artists? So the question certainly was being asked. And I just started exploring into, you know, women-generated art, mm -hmm. obviously the feminist movement of the time. So back then, this was, oh my gosh, 90, I don't know, two or three. Um, so really coming off the crux of the second wave of feminism, where we're looking at more equality-based um, representation mm -hmm. and getting into, you know, typically male-dominated history or fields. Um, so I just started exploring that, and it really um, pushed me to get a master's degree in women's studies. And then subsequently, I went on to get two more. But during that time, I started understanding that women who are producing art were really producing work that was about experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, not that there's one monolithic female experience, but really things that hadn't been addressed before, looking at representation, looking at objectification of women, even within the art field or big you know, art spaces like museums. What did that mean throughout history? And also then the negation of women who had contributed specifically to arts movements. I think I think about, okay, let's, you know, Charlie Harper, everybody knows his work, but do we ever think about Edie Harper, mm -hmm. right? No, most people don't know that he had a wife who produced art that was very similar to his, or even, you know, Jackson Pollock and his work that was being produced and how his wife was also kind of negated from the production of that work, in fact, for really creating that whole movement of abstract expressionism. So then looking at the experience of women in art led me down the path of looking at women as experiencing a whole level of violence that their male counterparts didn't. And what kind of, what advocacy routes could I take based on that? Um, you know, so after spending 13 years teaching in the universities, eight at UC and then the last five at Northern Kentucky University, I had the opportunity to begin working for the YWCA, and that was five years ago. Now, interestingly enough, um, I always knew I'd go a path down like working at a museum teaching or working in an advocacy space, people are like, what do those have to do with each other? But I think they have a lot. Um, when I had the first opportunity to work for the Y, I really had a hands-on um, experience of working with people who were going through the things that I was studying or reading about or seeing. Um, so really, that's kind of where I am today. Yeah. So what, I mean, what does... I guess a typical day for you look like, like, what do you do? Like what's, what's sort of the actual work of it? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so as a director of non-residential domestic violence services, 
we under um, our team, you know, I hate saying my because it's not, but it is, you know, I direct the team um, that serves Hamilton, Claremont, Brown, and Adams County. And we do a lot of comprehensive intervention coordination. What that means is really like comprehensive case management, connecting people in our community who've experienced trauma, domestic violence, sexual assault to resources, um, to promote safety, to reduce risk, but that are also holistic, that have lasting approaches and that are empowering. Um, so a day-to-day -day looks incredibly different. Um, I'm involved in a lot of community collaboratives in which people come to the table to look at best practice. What are we doing in our communities? What can we do better? Um, specifically, um, two that I'm really near and dear to my heart are the you know, children exposed to domestic violence work group in Hamilton County, which I co-chair, and then I co-chair the Family Violence Prevention Project. I do a lot of trainings on lethality and homicide risk reduction for women and children who are experiencing violence, children exposed to trauma. Um, I do a lot of curriculum-based intervention strategies for teachers across all ages. Mm -hmm. um, so a day-to-day -day would be a mix of being out in the community, sitting on coordinated community response task force, doing trainings, managing our teams, and then of course managing you know what it takes to manage programs. The YWCA is 150 years old this year. Um, we have a long history of empowering women and eliminating racism in Cincinnati. Um, and so managing those big pieces of budgets, of you know payroll, of all of the stuff it takes yeah. to be a director. Um, so that's kind of a day-to-day, -day. no one day is the same. And that's right. what I really enjoy about it. I, when you were, I'm glad you brought up like sort of the YWCA's history because I was just thinking to myself, I was wondering like how long this sort of, you know, programs for victims of abuse has been around. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, is that, I, mean, I wouldn't imagine that's always been the focus or has it been a part of it for how, about how long? Well, I mean, that's a great question because when the YWCA began, if you're familiar with the location downtown at 898 Walnut, now there's Walnut Towers, which are a series of apartments that are not associated to us and we're in our admin is in the other four floors on the other side. But when we first began, those were actual apartments for women mm -hmm. who were coming into the city specifically to work. Um, so women who were single and working in, during this time period were not really looked highly upon and needed right. a space in which they could come and be accepted. I mean, so that's one example. At that point, we were not talking about domestic violence or sexual assault right. as, as a country, as communities. Um, and then when you look at the pre-civil rights movements, what started happening, we became very inve invested in that, the suffrage movement, so women's right to vote. Um, we were, in fact, the first cafeteria that hosted um, dining room hours for people of all races in the early 1950s, when a lot of places still in Cincinnati were segregated to have open dialogue, community discussions about race relations. Um, and then the focus specifically on violence and how women are impacted, and women, men, and children. The majority of victims are female, which is why I tend to use that gender, um, but it can happen to anyone, was really in the late um, or the mid-1970s, okay. um, when everybody, as communities in the second wave of feminism was beginning, were talking 
um, about domestic violence through consciousness-raising groups. Um, so our domestic violence shelter is the eighth oldest in the country, um, and it's still here today in Hamilton County, centrally located, and has 67 beds, and is almost always at capacity and full. So then we really saw the shift of working with people who had experienced um, intimate partner violence or sexual assault, or kids who were, were being exposed to those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had no. I guess I, I had no idea that it's always been such a kind of progressive. I don't know, institute since it's founding. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I mean, even, you know, when you're talking about that idea of housing for women in that case, it's like, it's still very kind of a progressive idea, I think, like for its time, at least that's the way I read it. I don't mm -hmm. know. To be sort of giving uh, a, a, a sort of independence uh, to those women and what year about what time would that have been You're saying about 150 years ago about or? 150 years ago so if we do the math here oh my gosh what is that i know this is like you're asking like an art major to like yeah 1868 <laughs> is when the ywca began we were incorporated that specific building and i'm not going to get the exact date correct but it was in the late 1880s early mm -hmm. 1890s so we were housed somewhere before that yeah i mean and if you think about I mean, this is pre-Depression, pre-World War II, yeah. so industrialization times when people were, when there was an urban migration into cities for work. But there's also very specific gender roles at that time about the expectations of what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a man. W women were relegated to that kind of private sector. And then men, of course, in the public. So working for women in those fields that are non-traditionally female um, was really not well accepted. And when you think about art and art production, it aligns with all of these movements. And I think that's one of the great things for me about looking at art, appreciating it, studying it, teaching about it, and trying to incorporate it into what we do today at the YWCA. That's how I make the connections because I can look at work from a specific time period and align it to that movement in which we were participating in as an agency or something that currently people are experiencing today. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, it's interesting the time periods too, just when you're bringing that up because it's like it aligns. It's interesting that it starts right around the same time that the museum started too. Mm -hmm. So they're like when you're talking about the late 1800s, you know, the museum the building uh, opened in 1886 and was founded in 1881. And also the effort of a lot of women too, basically who wanted to start, you know, this yes. institution. I mean, it's real, it's true. It's like, we would not have a museum if it weren't mm -hmm. for a lot of women who are passionate about it. So it's, it's, you know, it's interesting how integral, you know, women are to the arts, especially. I mean, if you look at like the founding of the CAC as well, mm -hmm. and I mean, almost every art institute has, like strong women behind it who are like, you know, saying it, this is important. We need to do this. So, you know, my role, I, I you know, I began working at the YWCA um, five years ago, not in the position that I'm currently in. I've been a director for three years. So I was doing like direct service work. When I had the opportunity to become a director, there's many things that stick in my mind about joining work, um, art production into trauma healing that we've had the opportunity to do. Um, and it's been incredible. We at the y YWCA, if people don't know, still have the only female, all female women artist gallery in the city of Cincinnati. I did not know that. There you go. And it's <laughs> free to the public. You can come in any time awesome. and it's on the second floor. So we switch out our exhibits on a quarterly basis. 
And there's always, I mean, these are national, local, regional female artists, and we have a long waiting list for people to, women to exhibit their work there. I mean, the themes are, are always different. It's a beautiful space to work because you're actually, you're within the gallery space oh, wow. on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so a couple of years ago, we had the opportunity to work from students at Riverview East and Euler schools. So kind of the East side, West side. And these are, if you don't know about these schools, um, educational systems in which kids face a lot of adversity mm -hmm. based on geographical location, but also poverty level access to resources. Um, and we had support group services for girls that had been victims of sexual assault and abuse there already in place. Um, and what we were finding when we were going into these schools, a lot of kids had experienced violence and trauma and the exposure of, and a lot of it was intergenerational. Um, so we had a 10-week art program in which we worked at both schools, and we had volunteers working at Euler. I had the opportunity to work with the art teacher at Riverview, in which the girls created, along with a national artist, um, her name's Jacqueline Berwald, art that would be exhibited in our gallery based on their experience. And and Jacqueline creates work that has a monolithic character. Her name's Melody, and she really like is in all of these um, circumstances that really connote um, young adolescent girl experience. But our girls, when they were creating their works, um, certainly had more experience related to trauma and after 10 weeks we're not afraid to show that mm. they then came they came to the ywca many times but they then came and their work was on exhibit for three months with jacqueline's and they were part of our gallery opening experience um and i venture to say and i know this because i see some of them in the community today that this was life changing for them life-changing for their stories to be heard to be validated and to be empowered through that experience of something that they may never have had the opportunity to do, to create artwork that was on exhibit in a gallery space and to be recognized mm -hmm. for it. I mean, it's still, that was one of the first things that I really pushed for and we um, got, we received a small grant from Artswave to do that project. Um, so what I try to do with my managers when we look at holistic um, community-based healing, you know, we, we have, we, a program specifically called Project Care that works with individuals with disabilities that are impacted by violence, and that could be cognitive disability, physical, or mental health disability. And the reality is a lot of people we serve fall into one of those three categories. Um, so we started doing work with uh, Visionaries and Voices in our last funding cycle. Um, we run on like three years of a funding cycle from the federal government. And we were doing some really great things with them because mm -hmm. a lot of the people we were serving were part of their programs. So I, along with Holly Watson, our project man manager, thought of ways that we could better incorporate this kind of holistic, uh, this idea of this holistic community-based art program. Mm -hmm. um, so then... This is how the universe works, and I hope this isn't too lengthy. <laughs> I have my daughter who's been, you know, coming to the Cincinnati Art Museum summer camps for a few years now, and I see an old student of mine when I taught a class at DAP um, in feminist art history, Sarah, and we say, oh my gosh, it's so good to see each other again. Let's do lunch. So we sit down, and that's really how the program began. 
um, her and I talked about, you know, obviously the past and how great it was to make connections, how much we love the summer camps at the, at the art museum. Um, and then what we could do, and since then, um, Holly and Sarah have started a community-based art program for people with disabilities that alternates, it's every second Tuesday of the month from 6 to 8 p.m., and it alternates between being hosted here at the Cincinnati Art Museum or at the YWCA downtown. Um, I've seen some of the collective projects, I've seen some of the individual pro projects, I've re looked at some of the curriculum that Sarah develops, it's incredible. and always has between 15 to 25 people who are attending with disabilities. What they're reporting to us is how amazing this program is for their healing on their, you know, their journey. Um, it's empowering for them to be part of something um, that they never thought that they would have the opportunity to do. And Holly and Sarah started it with even having our, you know, 15 to the 20 people that we're serving that wanted to be part of this program come down to the art museum. I mean, they were afraid to come into this space. It can present some, oh, yeah. you know, some feelings for people. Like I'm not, you know, I don't know anything about art. What do I do there? And they spent three hours going through um, the galleries, learning a little bit about art. There's always that component of learning about the art, but then like you creating your own piece, mm -hmm. um, which now some of it's on display you know, in our offices. Um, and then coming up with the Real Film, dis, um, Real Film Festival coming up this fall, we just received a grant from Photo Focus. Um, and during that time, we will be one of the gallery walk sites. And this is the greatest. Um, our, the people who are part of this art program um, that are part of Project Care, and these are, these are the people we're serving, um, who've experienced trauma or violence and have a categorized disability are creating the work um, right now for um, our gallery exhibit because the Real Film Fest Festival is all about um, people with disabilities yeah. and the production of film associated to those ideas or by people with disabilities. You said the, you know, that the experience of coming to the museum is like, and, and having this program is is you can see a real effect mm -hmm. on it. And I'm wondering, as somebody who's like both passionate about art and these issues, why do you think that is? Like, why do you think it works? Or why do you think it it has an impact? Well, I think, I mean, I, I think of my own experience and one of the first pieces of artwork that I loved was La Vie by Pablo Picasso. And then looking at that work and not only appreciating it aesthetically, which art, that's easy to do with art, but then learning what it was about. Mm -hmm. And that gave me so much insight that you as a person can relate to. And that's what's happening um, with our participants in Project Care. It's breaking down a lot of barriers and art is healing. One, it can draw you into somebody else's experience. One, it can just allow you to go somewhere else through the aesthetic appreciation of art, but to be able to create something that's valued um, that's validated by other people within this community that you thought you could never be a part of mm -hmm. has so much um, empowerment value for these community members. And I, I really think, you know, this was something we wanted for a long time was to have a holistic art-based healing program. And the Cincinnati Art Museum has been an incredible partner for that. 
Well, I think it is time to go look at some art ourselves, uh, if you're ready. I'm uh, ready. Okay, I think you're gonna really like what we're gonna look at today. Okay, awesome. Uh, so this is take two. Um, take, two. <laughs> take two. Take two. We recorded for a few minutes there before realizing that the recorder was actually in standby and not actually recording all the really smart things we say. So if we say anything kind of stupid this time, just know that that one that was lost. Um, <laughs> it was. <laughs> that it was. Um, this is good. This is going to be so much better. It's, so it's going to be so much better this time. Okay, I have to remember now everything I said, but I'm not going to try to say it exactly, but uh, we need to hit the big things. Where are we? We are in Gallery 212, and we are in this special feature uh, photograph exhibition called Multiple, Multiple Medium Photographs from the Collection, and it's a really cool show. I strongly encourage you guys to come check it out, um, and there's some really beautiful pieces all kind of dealing with the idea of photographs and, and the fact that they are there are multiple photographs, multiple prints of things, and also um, these projects that are built up of many parts, which is a, a lot of the things. So we have this Edward Moybridge uh, 360 view of San Francisco that's made up of multiple photographs, which is really, really awesome. Um, there are, you know, different views of the same objects. It's, it's, it's a really cool, um, really cool exhibition. Um, but one of the things that is my favorite piece in this exhibition is this piece by uh, Zanelle Muholi, um, which is from her series Hail the Dark Lioness, which are these uh, series of self-portraits she's done where she kind of has taken on different personas that are often kind of making the viewer confront stereotypes they might have of black African women specifically. Um, she has also worked really uh, strongly as an advocate for the LGBT community in Africa. Um, and so one of her more famous series that uh, she also uh, has been working on are these portraits of, of queer women in Africa that are, um, you know, often really kind of raw, naked um, looks at these communities. Um, and they have been controversial too sometimes. Actually, I was reading that like, a government minister literally walked out of her exhibition saying, this is indecent. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. remember those days in Cincinnati <laughs> oh, yeah. with the Maplethorpe exhibit? <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's, it's really interesting because um, uh, Africa is actually, South Africa has had... Um, anti-discrimination laws for quite a while so you're not so it's you know it's sort of shocking to hear a government official be so bold as just saying that um and um another thing is is while they also are very progressive in say having uh, same-sex marriage uh, you know legalizing that really early um they also have had a lot of issues with you know still intolerance in in the culture um and a lot of assault um especially directed towards towards women um, and uh, lesbian women, uh, trans women, who are often the victims of what is what are called corrective rapes, which mm. is just a horrible idea. Um, and so she's been trying to bring a lot of these ideas to light and to sort of make people confront them with her work, um, as well as just simply discussing them, you know, and a part of it is just, I think, making these things 
visible. So, um, you know, when we came into the space, what was the sort of first thing you noticed about this piece? Well, one of the first things, and I'm trying to remember all of our <laughs> incredibly intelligent oh, so smart. points before so smart. about <laughs> art as activism. And I did, you know, have to preface this by saying, for me, female artists throughout history, at least the 19th and 20th century, when we're looking at the production of art, are about activism. So the first thing, and I, I feel unfortunate that I will certainly research this, her work, because it is incredibly powerful, um, the contrast. And I think the gaze is what hits you when you walk into the gallery space. And for, not everybody has to know about the male gaze specifically, um, but for people in art, and, and a female artist in particular, a black female artist from Africa, claiming that space first as an artist in a medium now, you know, such as photography, that's really been pushed into this kind of pop culture realm, right? I mean, there's mass production of images everywhere on social media and through our phones and our devices. So really kind of calling into the question of even the medium itself um, being um, this type of quote-unquote fine art um, worthy medium and her and her own identity as an artist quote-unquote worthy again of being within a gallery space so that gaze and the contrast of the whites of the eyes to the darkness um, of her skin in the image and just that natural the, the ways in which she evokes, and, and Russell said this before, about the everyday objects and some of her 365 images of, you know, of different types of women, um, African women, that she has natural hair, you know, in the 70s or 80s, that would have been called, I mean, I guess today still an Afro, maybe not her she's that's also just the use of another object yeah it might be her. yeah we were saying i don't know for sure if that's actually her hair mm -hmm. i suspect it's a wig just because of in the other uh pieces yeah. i've seen from her it, it looks like her hair uh at least in those images doesn't look like that but i i'm not sure it just strikes me as uh maybe the the sort of prop she's using almost in right. this because most of them seem to have some sort of uh Prop. I was telling you before she, you know, I, there's one piece that I really love where she's covered in clothespins, mm -hmm. like her hair is covered in clothespins. She has them on her ears, like earrings. Um, and from, you know, a distance, if you just first glance at it, you might think, oh, she's wearing some sort of traditional African garb. And then you look at them and go, oh, wait, no, those are clothespins. And so she's also making you kind of think about why you would assume that, right? Like, mm -hmm. wh why do you have that assumption? And, you know, you become a little implicated in it as well. And, you know, I, there's one I, I remember she has this um it looks to me like a vacuum cleaner like the hose part mm -hmm. of it wrapped around her and again it becomes having so, uh, uh, this sort of connotation of traditional wear or something that you might see um and and so she's playing with those expectations a lot well, and I think that's interesting because when you think about the clothespins or the vacuum cleaner these are all things that women clean very domestic with. Objects. very domestic yeah, yeah. and if you look at the history I mean if you look at American history um, in the history of African American women or African women when brought over to slavery that's the roles in which they served you know, they were in the house, they were servants, they were cleaning. And I think that's still carrying on that same, like that generalization and that stereotype 
for me though, this image does a little bit something different um, only because you were talking about the social activism associated to the LGBTQ movement in South Africa that she participates in or rather tries to raise awareness around um, because I, I do think, and this is what struck me initially, you know, one, the pose, the pose is very much like a seductress, but without the hair, um, this figure is incredibly androgynous. So one maybe question whether or not, you know, what is the identification between male or female? And that in itself is very queer of blurring those lines between how one, somebody identifies you, you know, in art, the gaze is what allows us as viewers to reaffirm the identity of what we're viewing and then thus objectify it. Women have a long history in art of being objectified in that way. But once we're unable to identify where this, where this, this image fits, what are the categories of it? I think it, it blurs those boundaries for us and leaves it you know, there's a question around it, around gender, around um, sexual orientation, around identity, which people seem to want to always, when you first meet somebody, you're categorizing, and I think people do it on subconscious levels. Oh, yeah. All where do you, where does this person fit? Yeah, yeah. I, I when you were talking about that, we were talking about the, both the gaze and the pose. I think they're mm -hmm. they're kind of interestingly a little bit at odds with each other mm -hmm. because I think the the pose has a little bit of a kind of the the way the shoulders are, heads up on her shoulder, mm -hmm. it has that sort of seductress kind of thing going on maybe. But then the the, the expression is pretty piercing, right? Yes. Like it's not quite that come hither look we often no. see in art. Um, you know, it's, it's not feeding into that kind of male gaze stuff that maybe you would expect as much. Or perhaps it is, but also revoking the image of, I mean, hail the dark lioness, we're looking at potentially a group of women um, that have already reversed those gendered roles and expectations in their own specific region. Yeah. And I'm not sure of the history um, of the people she's trying to invoke here. And, and, and we don't know this as viewers when we come in, you know, when we're looking at art, you know, for somebody off the street, unless we're studying these things and we're immersed in it, this is our first initial reactions. Um, but certainly does have, it reminds me of an old phrase, I'm never going to get it right, but something about when hunters see the white in the eyes mm -hmm. of the animals in which they're hunting. Yeah. Well, and that's actually an, a sort of maybe knowing that she's trying to confront stereotypes here. One mm -hmm. of the things I was trying to think about, like, what is she, what is she trying to do with this one in particular? And I think, you know, one of the stereotypes a lot of people have about, um, uh, let's just say the southern hemisphere of the globe, <laughs> like, right. like basically half the earth, um, yeah. is is that it's like you know a jungle and it's and uncivilized. it's right, it's uncivilized and it's like not a major metropolitan city that's mm -hmm. huge. And so, um, knowing that she's she's working in basically you know a city, um, but she's she's showing this you know character that she's playing almost. Um, that is sort of blending into the the leaves in the background, right? Like right. she's almost indistinguishable from the background. Um, she's become a part of it, and her hair kind of reflects the mm. the the kind of ripples in the leaves as well. So it's almost like this very it plays into maybe those ideas of of yeah the uncivilized person right. from from the jungle or the first and third worlds so to speak. And you know, here I just had a feeling and it, and it really, as, as I'm sitting here, 
you know, gazing at this picture and, and trying to understand a little bit more about, you know, re the 365 images that were produced, photography as the medium, really invoking the gaze back on the viewer, I'm getting a flashback to Cindy Sherman's work. Oh, definitely. Um, it's totally like, I think, you know, is very much aware of that that mm -hmm. project too. I think so. Of like the untitled film stills and yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, which also played in the t when looking at that, you know, when Sherman's work was produced, looking at how white women were objectified, not only in the art world, but you know, trying to claim some status, um, using photography as a medi medium as a fine artist, but also looking very specifically at these stereotypes and generalizations of around what it means to be a woman. And you know, I I would like to see this work with you know, with some of her others. I oh, think yeah. getting um, that bigger picture. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of, it, it's it's why it's sort of included in mm -hmm. this show is actually sort of this idea that it is a part of this much larger project and just simply the sad thing is like, we've only got the one, <laughs> right? Like, we'd love but to have one. We'd love yeah. to have more, I'm sure, you know, and, mm -hmm. um, but right now we've only got the one, um, but you know, it's something we felt was important uh, to make a part of the collection and something, you know, we wanted to have as a part of it. Yeah, I, I, I think that connection to Cindy Sherman is interesting. I also think, though, it's it's one of the things that separates her from, mm -hmm. from Sherman is that she's also, like, she's doing this, which is kind of like the Cindy Sherman untitled film stills, but then she's also doing her other portraits, which are almost in like kind of a Nan Golden realm mm -hmm. of like these like really direct, like I'm like going to photograph my friends and people in this like kind of just super realistic way. Um, which those are two really different ideas, right? Like because there is an artificiality around Sherman's work, right. the construction of the, the space and, and costume, Right. Yeah. So it's like, it's a really strange, it's kind of a, like an interesting budding of those two worlds where one is very constructed and then one is like very much not constructed or, uh, you know, I mean, I've seen a few of some of those images and they are very, um, maybe to compare them to say like Nan Golden is not quite fair because they're maybe a, a little more composed. Mm -hmm. Um, they're not quite as like I don't know. Anytime you look at like a Nan Golden photo, you're just like, that room has to smell so bad. <laughs> like, it's just always like, I'm just always like, they're so like visceral and like, you're just yes, like, you kind of, yeah. you kind of know like what the sheets smell like in that room. You know what, yeah. like everything It's like, oh, those dishes are so dirty. Like, you know, everything is just so like, ugh. like you have just walked into somebody's house in a way that makes you like a little uncomfortable. Right, right. Whereas I think the images I've seen are, are a little more staged still, even though mm -hmm. they're, they're portraits. They are, you know, somebody sitting. So I think that that there there is a difference there too. But I think it's it's cool that she is, um, you know, approaching these things from two different sides and and looking at you know all the different ways you can make photographs as well. So agreed, and it's a quite powerful piece. I'm interested, um, and not that it has to be explained when viewing art, but how does it fit within? The larger exhibit mm. does it well it's it's a really i think it does um if you're going to ask me mm -hmm. but i mean you're welcome to make your own <laughs> mind i mean you don't have to listen to me and i didn't curate it so i don't it's not like mine. <laughs> i'm not a curator i don't have, have any skin in the game you know i think it's a really interesting idea the show is is about so many different things and so um again this one i think is mm -hmm. is about looking at 
something that we know is a part of a larger pr project, right. even if we don't have them. So it's kind of like, take this in that uh, system. But I think it works for me because every single piece actually approaches this idea in a, in a totally different way. I'll, I'll admit, I'm a really bad museum visitor in that I almost never read labels, right? I always read labels. I read labels first, but I really think my, you know, one of my first, um, interactions at a museum was was doing all of that work i right. i was writing labels yeah. and researching what to write for people who don't under who come into an art museum and i think they're like hmm what does that mean a label can give them some sort of direction well and that's what i was about to say was that this show i actually read most of the labels Interesting. because of that idea of like I would get to a piece and go, well, how does this fit into this show? So I kind of like, I actually think the labels are really important in this show because I, they helped me out in understanding like what was the sort of um, connection. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there are a lot of really disparate pieces in the show. And I actually really love that because I'm, I'm sort of, I really love the sort of puzzle of it to me too, of right. like going like, wait, why is this here? You know, and especially from a distance, I might look at something and go, I don't know if I understand how this fits. And then I'll like read and go, oh, okay, I get it. And actually one of my favorite things about this show is this little like, um, we have a little reading area with these just four books. And I feel like there's plenty of, you know, it's not that uncommon to go see a show and there'll be like a sort of, little reading nook or something where you're supposed mm -hmm. to like with supplemental materials that you're supposed to like pick up and, and gaze at. But these are the only, the only time the books have labels. <laughs> so they actually wrote labels for each book that's included huh. and, and they're really good and actually do a really good job of like framing the books as a work of art as well. And why, so I actually can, I actually look at all of these books. Can you pick those books up and read them? Yeah. Yeah. They're just so like, they become accessible then yeah, to the person. They're just, you know, like any other kind of gallery copy of a book that mm -hmm. you would uh, en encounter. But it also makes me feel like there's this extra level of care taken in why that book is here. And it's not just like, more books on this artist, like these are new artists who are represented or mm. new projects that are represented. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a really interesting idea to me and, and this idea of like mul multiples and, and how that affects, you know, there's uh, the Dwayne Michaels piece over mm -hmm. here is about, you know, how you can use multiple photographs to create a sense of narrative. Right. So it's like he's using it in the way almost like of a comic strip that like whenever you put images together, it creates time, whereas the Moybridge is creating a sense of space. So I don't know. I, I think it's 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 interesting to me of like how it all works. And I kind of like when things are a little like a, not totally tight. And I kind of want to like go like, oh, wait, how does this work? What's, what's well, going on? I like the concept of a photograph of evoking like memory. Mm. And I think that can be like an individual memory. And even when we're looking at somebody else's photograph, we can identify with certain aspects of it, but also to understand it can like evoke some type of collective memory. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for me, I, I've always appreciated photography as a medium to do that because, and then the reproduction and the idea of reproduction and almost endless reproduction, you know, what does that mean for the original? Um, in regards to these books, you know, after being, you know, having children and, and introducing them to museum, I think that this is great because it allows them to know that one art can be accessible. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it can be quote unquote what they perceive as everyday things. Yeah. Um, and but can also get them intrigued to looking uh, looking at other pieces or something that maybe they relate to or evoke some type of memory in them. And I find it interesting. This is the last thing I'll say about the cat <laughs> the the labels because I'm a label reader and I love that I love the historical aspect of art and for me it gives just a broader picture um, and when the kids come into this space I'm like read the label first <laughs> or we read to them because I want them to understand what time period or what piece what are we looking at when was this produced and why is it important because when you're looking at a very famous work I'm just going to use like a Van Gogh as an example and then we're coming into looking at more contemporary work there's a reason there's a difference. They may have, though, similar messages behind why they're creating. Think, I mean, I'm thinking of just Van Gogh's self-portrait here, okay? And, and looking at this piece, we're looking at very different images, but the reasoning, though potentially has changed, could have some similar meaning for that artist and the reason why they produce that work. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I am... I am not the model citizen here when it comes to reading labels. I am, yeah. I know I'm the bad, I, I, I'm <laughs> the bad seed. I should read labels more. I just, I, I tend, and I think part of it is also like, you know, what you're saying is like, oh, you need to read a label so you understand the context. Mm -hmm. And I think most of the time I kind of walk into a gallery and I'm like, I think I got this. Like, I kind of know the context, <laughs> I already know. like, which is terrible because right. I shouldn't say that, but I'm not like I'm an expert on everything, but it's like, you know, I got the big picture at least here. And then only, and I typically only read a label if I sort of want more, you know, mm -hmm. cause basically I'm like, I ain't got all day. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, if you read every label, you could, you would be, you could, you would be going through a museum at a snail's pace. So and that's why people come to the museum over and over and over and True. over again, because you can't possibly take it all in. And in you one shouldn't, visit. and you shouldn't try yeah. to either. I mean, that's, that's definitely not the goal either. Cause I, I agree. Like, and, and, you know, when I visit other museums in other cities, I, I usually try not to do that. Like I try not to do the, like the rushed tour. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I've talked about this on the show recently, but I was in Rome and I went to um, the Vatican Museum. It's basically like being on a Disneyland ride where oh, you're no. like locked in because you there are so many other people there and all they want to get to is the Sistine Chapel. And so, and the museum is designed in a way that is essentially like one linear path to get to the Sistine Chapel. So like the whole time you're there, you're just being pushed forward. And there are literally like these, this huge hallway that's like two giant connecting hallways that you have to walk through. And it was like shoulder to shoulder tourists all pushing all just like it was a nightmare. That sounds terrible. I it, mean, it I, was, it, it was horrible because you couldn't stop and like, you know, you couldn't stop hmm. and breathe, let alone read a label, you know, you would have, and so you had, you walked away with them. Or like, you'd be trampled. Right. And you, and I just totally left feeling like, I have no idea why any of this stuff is here. Like what's the context for any of it other than the things I already knew about before I walked in the door. Right. So it's like everything I learned about the Sistine Chapel was before or after I was there. I mean, I, of course, experiencing it was very nice <laughs> and being there to see it. And actually, the, the actually being in the Sistine Chapel is one of the few places you can actually stop because they have like sort of a, okay, here's the moving lane and here's the stopping and looking lane. And so you could actually take your time and look. Um, but boy, 
it was rough. I much more enjoyed, like, again, like, even being in, like, St. Peter's was a much more pleasant experience because I was able to kind of walk where I wanted to walk right. and go where I wanted to go and not being shoved around. But uh, at that point, I was almost like, I really wish they had just built, like, a haunted mansion-style buggy that I could sit in. <laughs> At least it would have been a more pleasant experience. Around. It was around. Yeah. It was already going to be like a linear experience, so mm -hmm. might as well just build a track through the whole thing and uh, turn my head the way you want me to look. <laughs> well, I'm glad that I have that feedback because certainly, I mean, you're going to see such a masterpiece. I wouldn't want to be crowded. Yeah, I would... Uh, I don't know. If you go, just prepare yourself. Just be warned. It's it's rough. I also, my husband is not a museum person. And so... I'm sure he loved that. Yeah. So there was a lot, <laughs> there was a lot of like, okay, we're in Europe. We're, I am going to go to museums. Like this is just the reality of this. So mm -hmm. it was like a bit of constant compromise of like, okay, we're going to do museums no matter what. Like, you know that. So like, let's deal with it in a way that we can both function so you know when we were at the louvre i could see you started like looking out windows you know like like a dog that's like, like i'm done i'm here. ready to go outside yeah, like yeah. you know just like i'm tired of everything inside of here um so usually when we were in dc i remember sort of saying like okay i'm gonna pick one area of the museum that i'm gonna go to and i'm gonna look at it really intensely and so I'm, we're just going to look at one thing but we're not going to go everywhere we're not going to try to see anything everything all at once i'm just going to pick one section but i'm going to look and i'm going to take my time <laughs> i'm going to do it the right way um and you know he would get bored and still like hang out on anytime there was a bench he would just be like all right i'll catch up with you later <laughs> Well, I mean, and in this this exhibit, I think could draw in, you know, speaking, you know, your husband, if he's not that intrigued by the experience, because it is a little bit more, you know, meaning of art certainly could seem difficult for people to tackle he, he sometimes. Might, he might like it too, just because he's he's into old photos. So well, some of it, and there's there, like yes. old things. And I think go, it's oh, relatable like for just making that commonality of the everyday viewer. Yeah. Right. There's also, I think, a reason I would read the labels in here more likely is because there are just less pieces, too. Like, if I went into a show that was like, if this was in the shift gallery and there was like a hundred photos, you can guarantee I'm not reading labels. Like, I might read one or two, but if it was like, when there's a sort of, this feels like an amount of reading I want to do it's in this doable. room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> This is like, this is a good amount of reading. When you don't want to take it off, you don't, wouldn't want to do that. Like, you'd ruin the museum experience. We come back to museums because there's always something different we haven't seen or at the stage in our life that we're in, we might interpret a work in a different way or find new meaning in it. Yeah. I think that's the beauty of art. I think, I think maybe the lesson here is, is there probably isn't one right way to do it, you know, to go to a museum. And so I think it's, it's probably valuable to do what works for you mm -hmm. because I think museums can become exhausting to people pretty quickly. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of different ways of dealing with that. And so for me, you know, I, I, I agree, like I'll walk by a piece that I've walked by a hundred times while I'm here at, at, you know, at work and suddenly I'll go, Oh, 
I've never noticed this. And then I'll read the label and all of a sudden I go, oh my gosh, like I, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm learning all this stuff about this thing I've walked by a hundred times. So, you know, um, but you know, there's also, that's kind of my way of doing it. I think is if I'm just visiting a museum, like probably out of every gallery, I probably read one label, you know, <laughs> like when I'm walking around, I'm sort of go, oh, what's this? This is interesting. And then mm-hmm. I want to, I, there's one thing in each room that usually pulls my attention to like, I want to learn more. And that's about the level of like commitment I want to have <laughs> at a museum. <laughs> See, I, I, I think I'm a bit different. I remember yeah. writing labels for this show um, that we had at the Contemporary Art Center for the Fluxus movement in art. Mm-hmm. So you want to talk about some interesting label writing and often very benign right you know we're looking at a matchbox you know what can a viewer take away from this so i mean i think there's a but yeah that's that's like the label in this instance is like hugely important too because yeah. yeah because it's like providing all of the context in most places but again i think that's like just like here where a lot of times that question intrigues me of like why mm-hmm. is this here right it's the same thing of like well why is this matchbox here why and then is this and then you kind of, of so artwork i would actually probably be more likely to read a label for a matchbox in that context <laughs> because it would just be like wait what is this like and that's sort of always a like i i'm a person who always loves when art basically does not look like art at first mm-hmm. to me i love being challenged like that and go like being confronted with something that I'm just like, I have no idea what this is. Yeah. Like, I am very curious now because this is totally unexpected to me. Well, and I think the same is true because I'm less drawn to read a label of a self-portrait from, you know, 1750 than I would of reading this label um, of this work that we were just viewing from 2016. I mean, there's just a little bit more, and I guess that's individualized, more dimension and depth to the meaning behind this. Yeah. Some would argue differently, I'm sure, however. No, and that's what I mean. It's like, you know, again, another reason, say, I don't, there are probably so many labels in this building I have never read, but it's also because I've been around these pieces so much that, like, you've just kind of, like, picked up on the story from a lot of times. Mm -hmm. So you you also, like, kind of walk by a thing, and you go, oh, I don't need to read that. I've, I've heard everything about it. And then a lot of times you'll read it and there will be something on there that you didn't know at all. So, you know, there's totally a value to, you know, you, you should read the labels. I just, I also think it's probably unrealistic to expect every visitor to read every single label that they encounter. Like that's just never going to happen. It's just not. And we know it doesn't happen. Like we know that most people, the, the average person doesn't read the labels, you know, we know that. So, you know, it doesn't stop us from writing. <laughs> right, right. That is somebody's job. Yes, yes, yes. it's a whole department's job, and right? I mean, they do they do other stuff too, but that's right. a, that's a big chunk of it is writing labels and writing, you know, the text and the the interpretation of these things. So, yeah, there's something very intriguing about that for me. But no, no, I mean, bless them. I wouldn't want it. I I wouldn't want the job just because I. I this, I'd just rather stand in a room and talk about it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the level I'm comfortable with. Like, uh, I don't want to like write this stuff down, but like I'll go hang out in a room and talk with people about it. Like I can totally do that. Like that I've got down. I can stand in a room, give me a microphone or not. Just give me an audience and I'll talk about it. But uh <laughs> <laughs> well, we've gotten very off track, but that's okay. That's also the name I of the, the so. game. You don't yeah. think so? No, I think we're still on track. Okay, good. 
Well, is there any last thoughts you have about this piece or, or, or anything? You know, it doesn't have to be about specifically uh, Zanelli or um, the show, but any, anything we should talk about before we, we say farewell? Well, I mean, I think, though I disagree with the categorization of a, a Black History Month or a Women's History Month, I mean, that's mm -hmm. a problem in general that we're just not part of integrated right history. Right. But when you look at February as Black History Month and you look at March as Women's History Month, and it really, this image I think is is the combination and the cultivation of the two coming together. Um, but also looking at that kind of global perspective that we often forget about um, when we're specifically looking at those, you know, February and March here in the United States. And, and I think that's an important piece that we often negate um, because the global experience speaks to the history we have here. Yeah. Um, so this piece is wonderful. It's it's breathtaking, but I I think it's very much um, as art should be thought provoking with a, a clear intent and message for the viewer to interpret. All right. Well, thank you so much for being my guest today, and I hope you come back sometime to join us again. <laughs> Well, I, in fact, I'll be here in March doing gallery talk. Oh my gosh, that's talk. right. Yes. You're doing the good job plugging it. You're going to be here uh, March, is it 18th? March 18th is okay. a Sunday doing a gallery talk for Women's History Month. So... Well, that's Ooh. awesome. So if you if you want to have your own gallery experience with Erica, you can come back then on March 18th. Well, thank you so much, Erica. Thank you, Russell. Thank you for listening to Art Palace. I just wanted to clarify that the museum does own two pieces by Zanelli Muholi, but only one from her Hail the Dark Lioness series. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have conversations about the art yourself. General admission to the museum is always free, and we also offer free parking. Special exhibitions on view right now are William Kintridge, More Sweetly Play the Dance, and we also have lots of special features like Multiple Medium, photographs from the collection, which we discussed today. We also have Marcel Duchamp, Boite en Valise, American Women Printmakers, Mementos of Affection, and Contemporary Japanese Ceramics. And join our guest today, Erica Yingling, on Sunday, March 18th for a gallery experience that explores art made by women. This program is totally free. And for program reservations and more information, visit CincinnatiArtMuseum.org. And while you're there, check out an image of the work we discussed today, go to events and programs, and then scroll down to Art Palace Podcast. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat, and even join our Art Palace Facebook group. Our theme song is Offrande Musicale by Bacalao. And as always, please rate and review us on iTunes. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum. <laughs>